Genesis is important because we have a promise from God and we see God unfolding that promise. He was bringing about the Redeemer of God's people just as he promised. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. Well, it's been several months since I uploaded my last episode, and the reason for that is I was out of country on business. But now that I'm back, I can finish my survey of Genesis. But let me begin with a quick review to get us up to speed. In the beginning, God created all things by the power of his word. He created Adam and gave him a command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He then created Eve. Sometime afterward, Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and then she gave to Adam, and he ate. That was the fall of mankind, and that's what brought sin into the world. Yet, God is a gracious God, and he was not willing to allow man to stay in his sinful condition. So he established a plan to defeat Satan. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And over the remainder of Genesis, and throughout Old Testament history and the Gospels, we see God unfolding and fulfilling his plan to do just that. In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to leave his land and come to the land that he promised him. And through the line of Abraham, the Savior of the world would come. Well, Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had twelve sons, and Joseph was his favorite. Because of this, Joseph's brothers hated him and wanted him dead. However, they ended up selling him into slavery. As a result, Joseph was taken to Egypt, where he was later thrown into prison. Well, one day while he was in prison, he was able to interpret dreams for Pharaoh and was raised to second in power over Egypt. During a famine, Jacob's brothers came to Egypt to get some food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Through a series of events, he sent his brothers back to the land of Canaan, to bring Benjamin, the youngest son, back to Egypt. Benjamin was Joseph's youngest brother. Yet Simeon stayed behind, and his brothers went back and told Jacob what had happened. They also told him that they needed to bring Benjamin to Egypt. This dismayed Jacob. He was sad that Benjamin had to go to Egypt. He already lost Joseph, or so he thought, and didn't want to lose Benjamin. And Reuben told Jacob that he could kill his two sons if he didn't bring Benjamin back. And that brings us to chapter 43, the first chapter of our last survey. There must have been some time before they returned to Egypt. Verse 2 says that when they had eaten the grain that they brought from Egypt, Jacob told them to go back to Egypt to get some food. But they reminded Jacob that the man they had met, which was Joseph, told them not to return without the youngest brother. Finally, Jacob relented and let them take Benjamin to Egypt. So the brothers returned to Egypt with Benjamin. Then they stood before Joseph, and he saw Benjamin. Joseph had the steward of the house have food prepared for a meal. But Joseph's brothers were afraid. They told the steward that they brought money the first time to pay for food, but all their money was still in their sacks. So they brought that money along with the other money to buy more food. However, the steward comforted them and told them not to be afraid, because their God and the God of their father put treasure in their sacks. The steward gave God credit for the money that was in their sacks. 
Then he brought Simeon out to them. And afterward, they went to Joseph's house, and he asked about their welfare and the welfare of their father. And they confirmed that Jacob was still alive. Then Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw Benjamin, and he was moved with compassion for his brothers. So Joseph stepped away and went into his chamber. And after cleaning himself up, he returned and ordered them to serve the food. And the food was served to them in isolation. It was served to Joseph himself, the brothers by themselves, and then the Egyptians who ate with Joseph by themselves. You see, it was an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. But notice what happens in verse 34. Portions were taken from Joseph's table and fed to the brothers, and Benjamin's portion was five times more than any of theirs. Obviously, they had a good time because they drank and were merry. Then in chapter 44, Joseph put his brothers to a test. He wanted to see how they were going to treat their youngest brother. So he had the steward of his house fill all their sacks with food and put their money back in the sack. However, he had the steward put Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And after the brothers left, Joseph had his steward go after them. When he came up to Joseph's brothers, he accused him of wrongdoing. However, the brothers claimed innocence. Not knowing what Joseph had his steward do, they said the person who had gold or silver from Joseph's house shall die, and they would be Joseph's servants. When the brothers opened their sacks, they discovered the cup in Benjamin's sack. They were greatly dismayed, which was demonstrated when they tore their clothes. Then they returned to the city and went to Joseph's house. And they fell before him and told Joseph that they had no room to speak or plead their innocence. Judah said that God found out their guilt, and now they were his servants. It seems really what he was saying is that God was holding them accountable for what they did to Joseph in the past. We saw the same thing in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. Remember, at this point, they didn't realize that this was Joseph, their brother. But Judah humbly admitted their guilt. Then Joseph told him that only the one who had the cup would be a servant. The rest of his brothers could return to their father. Then Judah pled with Joseph, and we see sweet words of humility. He told Joseph that Benjamin is the remaining child of his mother. Remember, Rachel gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin, and Jacob loved Rachel. Judah loved his father and didn't want any more heartache for him. He knew it would destroy Jacob if he returned without Benjamin told Joseph that he made a pledge with his father that Benjamin would be safe and Judah would bear the blame if Benjamin didn't return. So Judah pled with Joseph that he would allow him to stay in Benjamin's stead so that Benjamin could return home to Jacob. And here we get a glimpse of Christ from the son of Jacob through whom Christ would come. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And here we have Judah willing to suffer the consequences for Benjamin's supposed wrongdoing. Keep in mind, Benjamin didn't really take the cup, but the brothers didn't know that. So here, Judah is acting as a substitute for Benjamin, so Benjamin could return home. He was willing to take Benjamin's place as the guilty party, so Benjamin could be set free. And he did this because he loved his father. Likewise, Christ is our substitute. Unlike Benjamin, we're guilty. We violated the law of a holy God and deserve the punishment of eternal death for our disobedience. Yet Jesus took our place on the cross 
so we could be set free from the power and penalty of sin and death. He was our substitute, suffering the consequences for our sin. And he did this because he loves the Father. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God the Father loved the world by giving his Son. Jesus obeyed the Father and came as our substitute because he loves the Father. He came to do the Father's will. And Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, coming back to the book of Genesis in chapter 45, Joseph breaks. He sent everyone away except his brothers. Joseph wept aloud and revealed himself to his brothers. His brothers were dismayed. Now, I'm sure they were shocked and probably fearful. Certainly, this was a hard pill to swallow. Their brother, whom they hated and wanted dead, was still alive. And they knew that Joseph was powerful and could easily take vengeance. Yet, Joseph called his brothers to himself and told them not to be distressed. And we see why he says this in verse 5. God sent him to Egypt in order to preserve their lives. You see, Joseph knew this was God who set this up, and he did this to preserve them. In other words, God had a good purpose for Joseph's distress and his brother's ill will. In verse 8, Joseph acknowledges that it was God who sent him to Egypt, not his brothers, even though his brothers sold him into slavery. And it was God who put Joseph over the house of Pharaoh, raising Joseph to second in power in Egypt. God did this to preserve Israel. In order for God to keep his promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he must preserve the line of Christ. And that's what he was doing. Christ would come through the tribe of Judah, and God had to preserve that line to keep his promise. Joseph told his brothers to go get Jacob and tell him, that he was alive, and God made him lord over Egypt. And he told his brothers that they shall dwell in Egypt, and then their families would be near him. Joseph promised to provide for them over the course of the famine, and he would make sure they didn't come to poverty. And we see a sweet picture of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph kissed his brothers and wept upon them. Where's the animosity in Joseph? It's nowhere to be found. When Pharaoh heard that Joseph's brothers were in the land, he gave him the best land in Egypt for his father and his brothers. After Joseph poured out provisions upon them for their trip home, the brothers returned to Jacob in the land of Canaan, which is present-day Israel, in the land that God promised Abraham. They told Jacob that Joseph was alive, but Jacob didn't believe them. However, when Jacob heard the words of Joseph and saw the wagons, he believed what they had told him. Joseph was alive. Now, from this point on, I'm going to move pretty quickly. We see in chapter 46 that Jacob and his family moved to Egypt. In verse 1, Jacob came to Beersheba and he offered a sacrifice to God. Then God spoke to him through a vision and reiterated his promise that he would make him a great nation and he would go with him to Egypt and bring him back to this land. Then in verse 7, we see Jacob and all his family arrived in Egypt. Verses 8 to 23 list descendants of Jacob who went to Egypt, his wives, sons, grandchildren, 70 people in all. In verse 28 and following, we see the reunion of Jacob and Joseph. 
Then in chapter 47, Pharaoh let Jacob and his family settle in the best land, the land of Goshen. Then we see in verse 13 and following that Joseph made money during the famine and purchased land for Pharaoh. In verses 27 to 31, we see the end of Jacob's life, and he made a request that he would not be buried in Egypt, but that he would return to the promised land and lie with his fathers. You will see that they always had their eyes on the promised land. So Israel is in Egypt for a time, and Jacob wants to return to the promised land, even in his death. In chapter 48, Jacob blesses the two sons of Joseph. In his old age, Jacob couldn't see and placed his hands on the boys, but in the wrong order according to Joseph. Jacob put his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. Manasseh was the oldest, so Jacob's right hand should have been put on him. At this point, I want to zoom in on Jacob's blessing. Look at how he blessed Joseph in verses 15 and 16. He calls on God to bless Joseph's sons and that his name, the name of Isaac and the name of Abraham, would be carried on. Then he calls on God to let Joseph's sons grow into a multitude. But most interesting, look at how he addressed God. The God before whom Abraham and Isaac walked the God who had been his shepherd all his life, and the angel who had redeemed him from all evil. The angel who had redeemed him? Who's this angel? Well, it can be none other than Christ. Who is Jacob talking to when he blessed Joseph? He's talking to God. And what does he call God? The angel who had redeemed him. The angel must be Christ because Christ is God and Redeemer. Secondly, we notice that his redemption is a completed action. He doesn't say the angel who will redeem him, but the angel who had redeemed him. His redemption was complete. So God gives us a glimpse of Christ here in Genesis chapter 48. But God does this often throughout Genesis. As God continues to unfold his plan to defeat Satan, he gives us glimpses of Christ who is the seed of the woman who will defeat Satan. And here, Jacob refers to Christ as he blesses Joseph. Again, no angel could redeem Jacob. Only God could redeem Jacob. So the angel must be Christ. Then in verse 21, Jacob told Joseph that God would be with him and would bring him back to the land of his fathers, the promised land. You see, Egypt was never intended to be a permanent residence for Israel. In chapter 49, Jacob speaks to his sons before he dies. I won't go through these, but I want to focus on what he said to Judah. Remember, Judah is the tribe from which Christ would come. And look at what Jacob says to Judah in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. In fact, the second and third kings of Israel were from Judah. Then after the kingdom divided into Israel and Judah, the kings of Judah were obviously from the tribe of Judah. His line is the kingly line, and from this line, Christ would come. So this is really a prophecy about Christ. He would be the eternal king. The scepter shall not depart from him. Well, in chapter 50, after Jacob died, Joseph and his brothers took Jacob's body back to Canaan to bury him. They were accompanied by an entourage from Egypt. And after they buried Jacob, Joseph and his brothers returned to Egypt. And at this point, Joseph's brothers began to worry. 
Now that their father was gone, was Joseph going to get even with them? So they approached Joseph and asked him to forgive them because they did evil to him. And Joseph responded with grace. He told them to not be afraid. What they meant for evil against Joseph, God meant for good. And God did this so that they would survive the famine. And then Joseph promised to take care of his brothers and their families. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Chapter 50 concludes with the death of Joseph. But before he died, he told his brothers that God would take them back to the promised land. And Joseph told his sons to take his bones from Egypt to the promised land. Again, Egypt was a temporary location. So Genesis ends with Jacob's family in Egypt, where they would stay for about 400 years. Now, there are several things I want to footstomp up to this point. First, God fulfilled his promise on his timeline. God took several thousand years after he promised to defeat Satan to bring Christ to the cross. And he took about 2,000 years to bring Christ to the cross after he promised to bless the nations through Abraham. You see, at times it seems that God is slow. We may even wonder if he's doing anything at all. Yet God doesn't work on your timeline. And his plan is working out right on schedule. He's not in a hurry. Well, second, we get glimpses of Christ throughout Genesis. For example, to some degree, God acted out the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ through Judah. He willingly substituted himself for Benjamin so that he could go free, even though Benjamin was apparently guilty. Christ does the same for us, though we really are guilty. He is our substitutionary sacrifice. Third, we see the sovereignty of God. Though Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, God is the one who sent him to Egypt as a slave. Joseph even acknowledges this in Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 8, and in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. That means his hardship was according to the sovereign will of God, or the purpose of God. Genesis is foundational to the Christian faith. In it, we see God, the creator of all things. We see his power. He created all things by his word. He created with his voice. That's how powerful he is. Furthermore, he created all things without sin. Yet we see the fall of mankind with Adam's disobedience. But we also see the grace of God. Instead of condemning Adam, God initiated a plan to defeat Satan and redeem a people for himself. And we also see that God is a promise-keeping God. He promised to defeat Satan, and we see in Genesis God carrying out his plan. We won't see the completion of his promise till we reach the Gospels with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But his plan moved forward throughout Genesis, and Satan couldn't thwart his plan. And throughout Genesis, God gave us glimpses of Christ. Jesus is the seed of the woman who would defeat Satan, crushing his head with his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Genesis is important because we have a promise from God and we see God unfolding that promise. He was bringing about the Redeemer of God's people just as he promised. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.